there. Welcome to the Home Health Occupational Therapy Explorer Podcast. Stirring the pot of support and inspiration so you can go play sooner, especially as a home health OT. I'm your host, Monika Wukashevich, and thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is about the PDGM. If you haven't yet gotten down on this, uh, welcome. This will not be our last episode, but it is one of the first. Um, And do stay tuned because um, today, Clarice Miller and I uh, begin digging into the PDGM. And up ahead, we do have Karen Vance also um, to talk about PDGM. And we welcome your questions. So if you've got questions, there will be ways to submit those. Um, I'm going to put a little link in the emails that I send to you so that if you've got questions, you can um, submit them there or actually just via email right now to monika at homehealthotexplorer.com or Clarice will tell you where to reach her to. So let's dig in. Thanks for being here. Hello again. Two quick things before we jump in. One, please be patient with me on this episode because I was having some recording technical difficulties during this episode and a shout out for the grit and perseverance um, from Clary Smiller for sticking with me on recording this one. So if you hear some uh, fun musical interludes, that's why I'm just piecing it together as best as I can here. And then also, I'm in the midst of planning a home health OT expo and workshop. I'll say a little bit more about it at the end of the episode. And if you want to hear more details and have more input, sign up for the uh, email at www.homehealthotexplore.com. Okay, let's dig in. So welcome back. This is another episode of the Home Health Occupational Therapy Explorer podcast. And I'm super excited to have another guest on that I was fortunate to meet in New Orleans this year, or I should, this year? Yes, still this year, Mm -hmm. um, at the AOTA conference. Um, And Clarice Miller is coming to us live from Kansas City, Missouri, right? That's correct. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast, Clarice. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, my gosh. So Clarice and I did a couple takes. Uh, what was that? Maybe last week. And so thank you for also your patience and sticking with technology and podcasting. Uh, yeah. It's a part of any journey, really, is sticking with <laughs> technology and fill in the blank. Um, so Clarice, you and I met. I always like to start with a little story of like how people come to be on the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. So you and I met at the meetup at the AOTA conference, and the meetup was for people coming into home health. And And you have your own story and experience with home health. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you've come to have anything to do with home health and kind of what your current role is with home health. Sure. So um, I, I guess to kind of go little far back. So I went to Columbia University for grad school out in New York. And then I did a um, level two field work as part of my master's with AOTA out in Bethesda, Maryland. And as part of that, I worked with the federal affairs team under Heather Parsons and learned a lot about um, 
home health and Medicare and the bills that we were passing, because one of the big bills we were working on, which is uh, the Medicare Home Health Flexibility Act, Mm -hmm. trying to get OTs able to do the OASIS start of care. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a bill that we can talk about later as well. But that was kind of my initial introduction into some of the policy world and kind of learning about that behind the scenes work, like why we get paid as therapists. Mm -hmm. So after that, as any new graduate is, I was looking for a job. I ended up being hired um, at a home health company. That's a contract therapy. So I worked for multiple different agencies through one contract agency. Mm -hmm. And I was with them for nine months. And um, now I'm in acute care, but I still follow home health. And during that time, I also applied for a position during the restructuring of the special interest groups. So they added an advocacy and policy coordinator. So this is actually the first um, attempt at having that type of position. So I applied under the home and community health special interest section, since that's what I know the most about. Mm -hmm. And fortunately I was selected for the job. So I am the advocacy and policy coordinator for the home and community health special interest section for AOTA, which is a three year um, term. Which is incredible. Um, so thank you for your service to this area of practice. Absolutely. Um, I love it. So how many more years do you have? I have two more years left. Okay, cool. So you've got, and it seems like you've got some, uh, some balls being tossed your way, especially recently with, um, a couple things coming down the pipes, which I know we're set to talk about for sure the PDGM, Um, And then also the Practice Act you kind of mentioned. And as a light side note, I would also like to say that it does make me feel a little bit better about the length of the podcast name, given the length of your role title. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it it gets complicated. um, I've got a lot going on. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you do. You really do. And so so you're current to kind of do like a, a recap too. So you had exposure with home health as a new grad too. Yes, that was my very first job. And so I want to circle back around to that too before this podcast is over because a lot of people have questions about, you know, is it too soon? You know, what, you know, I'd be curious to know what you would pass on to people in that position. So like let's just mentally bookmark that before this podcast is done to circle back around to that. Yeah, certainly. Um so you where should we begin, I mean, with the PDGM? Like, can you give a little bit of a background about the PDGM? This is being tossed around, an acronym sure. being tossed around more, um, and especially considering, like, let's say that our, the main person listening at this point is somebody who's like, I'm thinking of doing home health, I'm not sure, and I hear about the PDGM, but I don't know what that might mean for OT. What would you say? So to kind of start, so PDGM stands for the Patient Driven Groupings Model, which is not to be confused with PDPM, which is the Patient Driven Payment Model, which is for skilled nursing facilities. So a lot of people are getting those confused, and I just want to make sure that we get that ironed out first. So PDG as in like GOAT M um, is for home health, and this is only for home health Medicare Part A. So anyone who works for those home health companies that bill Part B this does not concern them. Um, So Medicare, I mean, this goes back as 
far as the start of the ACA, they established these alternative ways of reimbursing services instead of a traditional fee-for-service model, um, which is where, you know, you give service A, I get paid a certain amount. So CMS or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they've been moving towards these grouping models. So trying to say, okay, we're going to give you this much money. We don't care what you do with it, but this is all you get. Mm -hmm. So it kind of puts the emphasis on the agency deciding kind of what the patient needs and trying to use their resources wisely Mm -hmm. versus instead having, um, you know, the agency just bill for a bunch of stuff and then Medicare saying, yeah, we'll pay for it as long as you provided it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of trying to push that value um, over volume, which is going to be a big buzzwords that you'll hear around is value over volume. Make Mm -hmm. sure we're providing valued care and not large volume of care. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of people are afraid about what this means for occupational therapists. And honestly, I think it's a good thing for us. It's going to be a lot of change at first um, because traditionally how home health has been reimbursed uh, from now until January 1st, 2020, which is when PDGM takes effect. So just in a few months. So currently a home health agency for part A, um, they are billed. They get kind of a bundled payment for all the skilled nursing part and those resources, but then therapy is reimbursed separately based on therapy thresholds. So a certain amount of money, if you have six um, or fewer visits in a 60-day certification period, if you have, I want to say it's six to 14, I could be wrong on that number, but somewhere in there, and then 14 to 20 visits. So anything over 20 visits, though, you don't get any more money. And that's for all three services. So if you had 10 OT visits and 10 PT visits in a 60-day certification period, that would count as 20 therapy visits. So that's why a lot of practitioners feel that pressure to try and make sure the total number of therapy visits are under 20, 20 or under, because if you provide over that, the agency does not get any more money for your time. Mm -hmm. So at that point, they start to lose that money, which... Mm -hmm always want to make sure that we're providing medically necessary care. So if your agency is telling you that you cannot go over that number, that's Medicare fraud, because that means they're denying that patient that care. And I I appreciate that you said that because I, and I do think this is something that can really happen. I think we're all like, no, that would never happen. I'd never work for a company that that might be the case. And I think it's unfortunately appropriate that we take a moment to say this can happen and I mean, and what would you say if someone finds themselves in a case where they're like, uh, that's totally my company. My company totally does that. Um, you know, always try and tread lightly. No one likes being mm-hmm. accused of right. you know, committing fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I would get phone calls like this all the time from agencies where they'd say, hey, our PT scheduled out this number of visits. You only have six visits to last 60 days. Well, that's mm-hmm. insane. That's like a visit every right. other week. Progress right. like right. that. And so I would just come back and say, you know what, this is my skilled assessment. Um, This is what I feel this patient needs Um, and try and, you know, maybe work with the physical therapist and ask them, you know, do you really feel like you need to see them three times a week? Because also it becomes a scheduling conflict as well, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's trying to, a patient can only tolerate so many visits into their home every week. So sometimes there is room where you're like, well, you know, maybe I don't need to see them twice a week. Like I see everybody else. Maybe I can them once a week or twice a week for one week and then go down to once a week. So 
there's definitely room to kind of negotiate. But at the end of the day, you're the skilled skilled clinician. You're the one running the plan of care. But you have to make sure that you're able to back it up with medical necessity. So it's kind of, yes, an agency, they've got to look at it from a perspective of um, money, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're money and they have to be able to pay you. But also, we're there to serve a client. And so kind of work with your agency and discuss, well, you know, this is how I feel. You know, where can we find a middle ground where maybe, okay, I don't have to see them twice a week for the whole 60 days, but how can we figure this out and work with the other disciplines? Yeah. And I love that problem solving approach. That's also relationship centered, you know, where we're working as a team and we're advocating and like really encouraging us to use our leadership and, um, advocacy skills, especially for the patient. And I remember, I think it was actually something Karen said at AOTA too, that you saying it reminds me of it, which is managing the case, not just the schedule. And so sometimes our patients, and I know, I mean, I've I've been guilty of this too, where it's like, oh yeah, it's just like thinking by the week, like it'll be one time a week for five weeks. And it's like, well, depending on what the patient needs, maybe sometimes it's appropriate to have actually like PT spend one or two weeks with them, have OT come in on the third week, if that's appropriate for the patient given the scenario. But sometimes what they need is some of the strengthening that perhaps is uh, mostly lower extremity to just get them stronger up on their feet so that we can do more meal prep or laundry or whatever based on the goals and the occupational profile from the beginning, if it's appropriate to look at the big picture of the whole um, case of the patient, not just week by week. Absolutely. Um, Cause it's very easy to get into those, you know, pre-written so ideas. Oh, we'll yeah. see him twice a week for three weeks, once a week for four weeks, you know, or whatever yeah. your traditional prescription is, but really trying to think about what that patient wants and what they need. Cause there's certain cases where they need us first and then PT or they need PT first and then us. And, you know, some people, they just don't want four visits in a week and you have to be mindful of that. Right. Especially in the beginning where it's like, they're Mm -hmm. just so overwhelmed about being home with a new condition. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you were saying, I I kind of took us after you said (laughs) that uh, talking about the, the max of visits and the potential that, you know, if this looks like fraud, I kind of took us down that rabbit hole. Um, So let's come back to you, the, where you were um, where you at talking with the visits and sure. com- so yeah so it right traditionally now it's one payment for nursing and then payments based on number of visits for therapy so CMS feels that that incentivizes a volume over a value right because it incentivizes an agency you know to say well we need to make sure we get them at least this many visits because that gets us more money right? If that threshold is 15 versus 16, well, let's make sure we get them at least 16 visits because that gets us more money than if we Mm -hmm. just do 13, right? Mm -hmm. What's three more visits? Mm -hmm. So that's incentivizing that volume of care to get more money. So instead, what what the patient-driven groupings model is, the PDGM, it's moving towards a capitated payment. So they're going to determine how much an agency gets paid per patient based on a certain amount of client factors, and we can spell all those out, but they're no longer reimbursing based on how many therapy visits they get. Now, that doesn't mean that therapy doesn't have a role to play and that agencies aren't required to provide therapy visits. So it's still required that the agency meet a patient's medical need, right? So it's not like agencies can just completely put an ax 
to to therapy because they still need to demonstrate progress because mm-hmm. that's going to reimburse that's going to impact their reimbursement and they need to be able to demonstrate improvement in functional level well we all know that therapy is the main way that we can demonstrate improvement in function mm-hmm. so that's where our role is and but that's why it's so important for practitioners to know what is PDGM and what goes into it so you can advocate best for your role in it. So this is not the time to sit back and say, oh, well, I'll just wait until my boss tells me what I need to do or my company tells me what my role is because they might get it wrong. And some have. So it's important that we know what our role is. So if we hear something, we can say, well, actually, I think we can have a bigger role than what we're hearing. So that way it's your own job security and it's advocating for yourself and for the patient. So what would you say that would sound like in a real conversation? Because I'm still like wrapping my head around the PDGM and on a practical level, you know, like what this will mean with my company too, because I am like, if I were to, you know, repeat back to you what I'm hearing from kind of the things I'm gathering about the PDGM, one of the biggest differences is really emphasizing, like you said, the value we can bring versus the volume. So as, as a therapist, it, I guess what it's already making me think is like, how can I potentially deliver functional outcomes, maybe in less time, but to be prepared that even if it's not, it's not necessarily about rushing. And it is about if I have to kind of make a case for why mm-hmm. OT would be in that we really have to be ready to say, what is the value that we can bring it of being in on the case? Yes. Yeah, so one of the big roles, so part of that determination of how much an agency gets paid for a certain uh, client or um, patient is part of their functional impairment level, which is determined from the OASIS, right? Which is the Medicare assessment that we do at the start of care every 60 days and at discharge. So one section of the OASIS are called M18. So they're the M18s. Um, People may see that. It's just a code. um, And it'll be like M1800, M1810. And it stands for different things. And so when you're filling out their impairment level, you're probably going to see that next to like a grooming or upper body dressing. And so with the OASIS D, which came out in um, January of this year. So it's been out for a little while now. So most people should be adjusted to it. Um, The measures that are going into that functional limitation is grooming, current ability to dress upper body, current ability to dress lower body, bathing, toilet transferring, general transferring, ambulation and locomotion and risk for hospitalization. So those are all those scores that determine their functional impairment level. And 90% of those are direct occupation-based activities, right? Mm Self-care, which Mm -hmm. is OT written all over it. So that's where you, and I think that's one of the best ways. And we've got an article out through AOTA from the special intersection. It was in those, one of those, um, oh, the special intersection pamphlets, Mm -hmm. right? So if you just Google PDGM and AOTA, this article will pop up and it's all spelled out for you there. But taking those sections and laying that out for your administrator or whoever and say, look, this is what CMS is looking at. This is where they're looking for improvements. And this is where I can help, right? We know this patient has issues with grooming. We know this patient has difficulty getting on and off the toilet. 
they need occupational therapy. And even though we can't do a start of care oasis, right? We can't just go out and open a plan of care. We can contribute to the scoring of the OASIS. Mm -hmm. So that's a fine line. I want to make sure that we differentiate between that. So when a patient is discharged from the hospital or a skilled nursing facility, the agency has 48 hours to see that patient. So usually if a nurse is involved, they have to do the start of care, which is why nurses more often than not do the start of care OASIS. A nurse can score them on toileting and grooming, but I find in my experience that they tend to score them higher than what we would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like a problem on face value, but if we score them as more functional, that means the agency is getting less money for that patient. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that that scoring is accurate because what happens if the nurse submits a OASIS that says the patient is, you know, men assist with toilet transferring And we go in and we're like, well, actually, they're more of a mod to max, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That means that we're not showing progress. Instead, we're showing a decline, which is a problem. Medicare Mm -hmm. does not want to see their patients declining under your services. Right. So that's an option for us to go and say, look, this is what's being scored. You need to get us in there within the first five days of that OASIS being started so we can contribute our scores and make sure that patient is being scored accurately for their function. And that's also an opportunity though for us as well to educate other staff members on how we look at it from an occupational therapy lens. Because sometimes it's just not possible for us to get out there within five days. I was just gonna say, and that's the tricky part. Um, With most agencies being, I think, almost understaffed, well, shoot, everywhere that's serving Mm -hmm. older adults right now is understaffed, Um, but, So this is interesting because what would you suggest, you know, for the second part of this, um, because I know, or I'm, I'm assuming most home health OTs are doing their darndest to get there within five days and that that can be challenging, doable sometimes, depending on the support you've got in the office to manage a schedule. Um, But what would you suggest uh, kind of more specifically for the second piece, which was educating your agency on what we can look at? So like, are you talking about, let's say you work somewhere and sometimes it is not going to be realistic. Let's say you're the only OT at the agency um, to be able to see everybody who's coming on within those five days. Uh, What would you suggest for the OT who might be in that situation, maybe in like a rural community? Um, If possible, I always recommend kind of doing like an in-service for the people you work with at your company. A lot of companies have weekly meetings or monthly Mm -hmm. meetings, or, you know, this is a good time to talk to your company and say, hey, maybe you can develop a video that gets Mm -hmm. sent out, you know, a CEU or something like that. But one of the things that I find um, lower, lower body dressing always comes to mind for me of how people score it differently, right? Mm -hmm. So we look Mm -hmm. at, can the patient get their own shoes? Can they Mm -hmm. put their own shoes on? And can they tie their own shoes, right? Those are three very distinct steps. Mm -hmm. I find watch a lot of other professions do it they kind of help them or they put them in the right spot and they give a little nudge but then they still score at mod i well that's not really mod i you know Mm -hmm. that's a min or mod assist depending on how much you did for them Uh, so that's an important distinction because all those points add up so clarice you were talking about classes you were saying something like i would hold a class Yeah, so I think it's good to hold 
a class or even send out videos, what have you, you know, just like when we were in OT school. Mm-hmm. So describing for other professions, what does a min mod max assist look like? What are the details that we're looking for um, when we're occupational therapists? And, you know, what, and CMS does have a little bit of different definitions yeah. of how they score levels mm-hmm. of assist. So mm-hmm. it's important to look up on their website how to score and they've got really great tools. So it's cms.gov yeah. and you can just search PDGM or Oasis D and they've got really well laid out manuals on how to score each item and what mm-hmm. a minisys looks like, what a modisys looks like. So I always encourage people to review that to make sure that you're scoring it accurately because it's just a little bit different sometimes of how we would score it um, traditionally. You so, know, and but- that's a really good point. And that was something Karen Vance also really um, emphasized was that when everyone's scoring it the same way, that makes it objective um, yes. and, and now measurable, you know, because it, there's a score, there's literally CMS has already made the score sheet. And I love that you're saying like, because as therapists, I think we're all like, no, 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 I got it. Min, mod, max. Like <laughs> I know those. Um, and that it, what can it really hurt us? And I say this for myself too, to really go look back at those to make sure that I'm being truly accurate to to what CMS is using for the grade book. Yes. What those and, that's, and that's important because at the end of the day, they're the ones looking at that, right. you know, they're the ones reviewing it and they're always looking for inconsistencies in documentation, right? Mm-hmm. They're there to support patients, but they're also there to look for cases where client or where providers are kind of fudging the numbers, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and if you're chronically scoring someone incorrectly, incorrectly or not objectively, that can put you at a risk. You know, it may look like you're trying to score someone lower than what they actually are. Right. And that would technically be considered fraud, right? Mm -hmm. So, and CMS doesn't care if you never looked at their manual when they're looking at that kind of stuff. They expect that you have done the adequate research to be able to score their assessments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's always important to know, you know, just because you didn't know it was a rule doesn't mean you didn't break it. Right. So, snap. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, but they're very easy to find um, and to read. I find them at least easy to read. And if you have, and people have questions, you know, people are always talking on community. I mean, I'm going to be a sound piece for a lot of AOTA's resources, but, Mm -hmm, um, (laughs) but that's a good place to go. If you're like, Hey, what does this look like in real life? Especially if you're a new practitioner or if you're getting into home health, it's going to look different at home versus in a sniff or in acute care where you're able to set up the environment the way you want. Yes. So look at those resources. I think that's a really great reminder too. And that you just said community, AOTA. So this is a great time to just plug these um, as resources, because I I think it's really, I guess I just want to take a moment to say I With this podcast, my intention is not to say, hey, I'm a home health OT expert. Um, My intention is to say, I have experience in home health OT and I want to talk to people who are have strengths in different areas so I can keep getting better. And I want to host experts in their fields of interest um, and to plug people into things where they can keep getting better and that we can keep growing as a community. And so the community that you just mentioned, Clarice, is one of the forum communities that you can plug into. It's Mm -hmm. like a Facebook group if you haven't heard of it. And you can post your questions there. And Clarice, you're in that group. So it's like you can 
ask questions about the PDGM um, and get responses. Um, Absolutely. I monitor it regularly. And so do the staff from AOTA. A lot of, you know, we have dedicated staff at AOTA who are experts in regulatory, which is what PDGM is considered as a regulatory issue, right? It deals with laws and regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've also got quality people. So Jeremy Furness is a big person who's been watching PDGM and PDPM. Jennifer Bowengrief, I I probably just butchered her last name, but those are two big people who are watching these forums and giving feedback as well as, you know, I communicate with them as well saying, Hey, I'm not sure how to answer this question. How would you answer it? And either they'll log in themselves and respond to it, or they'll tell me and I'll log on. So I monitor it pretty much at least weekly. um, But usually every other day I'm checking it out. So it's, and other clinicians are on there as well. And so it's a really great place to brainstorm and say, well, you know, here's how you can advocate or here's what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great community and it, it makes me sad when people don't realize how many resources are available to them through AOTA. And this is the importance of maintaining membership um, is because it's, it's not just for conference or for the magazines. They are constantly posting these resources. And they recently did a, a uh, interview with actual CMS officials to ask them questions about therapy and CMS um, mm. and the, the models. And so that should be published for members, um, here within the next week or so I would expect, but that's a good thing to listen to because you're going to get, you know, information directly from the horse's mouth. Yes. I love it. Great. Any other resources we should know about from AOTA, especially for the home health OT? Um, I mean, there's, there is a big textbook that's being in, that's for home health that I think other clinicians have found helpful. Um, but I always go to the advocacy and policy tabs or even just using their search tool. AOTA has made a big effort in the last year to improve their search tool. Mm-hmm. So when you search for something, it's not going to pull up an article from five years ago. It's going to pull up recent stuff because um, you just never know when stuff's going to be posted. True. And I always go to the front of OT practice magazines. Those first few pages are usually where the capital update is or where the regulatory updates are. And that's where you're going to find a lot of information about PDGM and P- PDPM and any kind of changes um, in insurance coverage is usually there. And then, you know, if you're interested in a topic, just type it into that search bar and a lot of resources will come up. And they're also very active on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I always recommend following AOTA and the regulatory and federal affairs teams on Twitter because they'll tweet out when they're at events or what events they've got coming up for practitioners to be involved in. Hmm. When. Yeah. So on a super OT note, when is your favorite time to like read research? Like what is your routine for that? Because sometimes I'm like, man, my routine for research, I feel like could just use a, use a, a facelift. Um, so do you have a routine for that where you're like, eh, usually Saturdays I like sit down and read the whatever it magazine. Really the day. Yeah. I mean, so usually my after work routine is I come home and I watch trash television for a little while. <laughs> Um, usually around 1030 at night is when I decide, eh, I'll see what's going on on the internet. <laughs> so I'm a night person. Um, but you know, there's times where we get busy and that's okay. You know, just because we know a lot about this does not mean that I spend five hours of my week every week looking up this information. You know, I've taken a couple weeks off. I need a break every now and then, and then I just kind of dive back in. Um, and so I have its pile of articles that I want to read and I just get to them when I can, you know, maybe Saturday morning when it's nice out and I have a cup of tea, 
I go outside and read a couple articles, but you can't, you can't make it work. You know, you've got to kind of find a time where you're relaxed and you're ready and open to the information. Yeah. Otherwise you're just going to resent it and not want to learn. Yeah. It's like a mindset. My favorite way of looking at it is, um, as a lifelong learner, I don't like CEU. Like I know that we need to use the acronym, but I feel like I've just, um, there's something about when I see things as like a lifelong learning experience. I'm like, yeah, send me up. Um, so anyways, I digress. So back to where we were at with PDGM, um, Okay. Yeah. You're talking about the, and the different levels and just like knowing the different levels and having resources to like keep growing our experience or our um, education about these things. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's a learning curve um, for everyone. You know, I've now had two or three years of experience and exposure to policy and regulatory issues, but it's also something I'm passionate about. So it Mm -hmm. makes it easier for me to read because I almost consider it a leisure activity, being able to read about policy, which I know makes me sound super nerdy. (laughs) That's so great. I love it when people have interest though, that, you know, it's like, it's so great. I love it. But that's part of, again, the benefit of membership is you, by paying your membership fee, you are paying others to do work that you don't want to do, right? See, um, our AOTA regulatory team, they take hundreds and thousands of page documents they read them because they're lawyers and then they put it into easy to understand information so they put out articles for you to read and I just read their stuff and then sometimes I might go to CMS and look at some of their kind of jargony um, wording to make sure I understand but it's hard you know it's written so that lawyers understand it and I am by no means a lawyer Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't want people to think that just because you're new to policy or because you're new to this, that it can't be for you. You know, I only have a year and a half experience as an occupational therapist. So I'm by no means 20, 30 years into my career and have multiple degrees to learn it. I just take time, you know? Yeah. So it's just one of those things that's accessible to people. You just have to kind of seek it out. I think so. um, yeah. But yeah. It's for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I think and this is a time to learn. And that's really, I think, great to just hear said out loud, you know, because I think it can be so easy, no matter where we're at in our career, to be like, mm, but I don't have the like dot dot dot, you know, like to come up with the excuse of like why we wouldn't do the thing that we would love to do if we just didn't really give a hoot, you know, or if it was just right. like if you knew that like you really might only have a year left to live, like what would you be doing with your career for that year? Yeah. Um, And so I do, I want to be mindful of time. So I know we have probably about 10 more minutes left together. Um, And I want to save some time to to talk about being a new therapist in home health. And I want to make sure that I've given you ample space and time to address the the key things that you think home health OTs really need to just know about, at least on a very basic level, about the PDGM. Yes. So for... My notes to people in general when it comes to policy is my favorite saying is that if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. So Mm. basically that means Mm. if you aren't sitting there talking about why we need to be involved, it's easy for our services to get cut out, Mm -hmm. right? And so, again, this is not the time for a therapist to kind of take a back seat and say, I'll just wait for somebody to tell me Mm. about it because – this is about your own job security yep. at the end of the day. Yep. You know, this isn't about, well, you know, if the patient gets two less visits, 
you know, I guess it'll be okay. This is about whether or not you have a full-time, part-time or no job. Right. So you want to make sure that you're advocating for your inclusion. And yes, they can't cut out therapy altogether, but if they don't know our value, and I've seen it happen numerous times, you know, I've gone to a conference where we talk to people and they're like, I was told that occupational therapists do low vision, but I'm pretty sure that's not true. I'm like, actually it is. What? We can yeah. address Exactly. So communicate, communicate, communicate. I love it. Well, Clary Smiller, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. That was a packed episode and for those of you who are on the email list, you received the resources um, mentioned by Clarice in that email. And if you want to be on the email list to get those links for future episodes, sign up at homehealthotexplore.com. And also stay tuned because I am in the midst of planning a workshop and expo just for the home health OT. I'll be sending out details in that same newsletter um, that I send links for the episodes and I will be asking for your input. It's something that seems incredibly vital to do uh, given the changes and just um, the need for home health OT and I would love to hear what your thoughts are on what you would like to have there, both in the expo and with CEUs. So stay tuned for more on that also. Thanks for being here. Drive safe, count your blessings, and keep exploring. Today's bit of inspiration comes to you from the book Walden, which is by Henry David Thoreau. I'm in an old school copy, uh, so it's on page 290, and it goes a little like this. I learned this, at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined... He will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put some things behind, will pass an invisible boundary. New, universal, and more liberal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within him. Or, the old laws will be expanded and interpreted in his favor in a more liberal sense. And he will live with the license of a higher order of beings. In proportion, as he simplifies his life, the laws of the universe will appear less complex. And solitude will not be solitude, nor poverty, poverty, nor weakness, weakness. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. <laughs>